I was last week in Germany and uh, to visit my sister. But on the way to Germany, I had a few nice experiences that I want to share with you too. I was sitting in the Newark airport and I hear behind me a guy who is not Jewish. He lives, I think, in North Carolina, but he works in Germany. And he was talking to two, two young yeshiva students and they developed a nice conversation. And he, he asked them, why are you guys wearing the string, the tzitzis? They have the tzitzis. Why are you wearing the strings? They, they try to explain them, but they know they're young students. They never, they never had these questions. This is questions you don't discuss in yeshiva. Why you wear tzitzis? You learn Talmud. Then they finally, they couldn't give him a good answer. Then they pointed them at me, tell them, ask him, ask him. Then he asked me that I tried to, I, I wanted to lead them to the idea that tzitzis is all about remembering the mitzvahs of God. The reason why we wear tzitzis is to remembering the mitzvahs of God. But how are you supposed to remember when you see tzitzis to remember the mitzvahs of God? That I was trying to lead them to the idea then when you, in the olden days, when you wanted to remember something, you made a knot on your finger or something, a string. I asked them, when you want to remember something, what do you do? He tells me, I, I, tell my, I, tell, I tell my cell phone to remind me. I saw this is a new generation. There is nobody to talk to. I tried another example. I couldn't, I couldn't explain it. Finally, I told them, when string are hanging from your pants, and you look at yourself and say, what is this doing? That's a reminder why I'm still wearing strings that have nothing to do, then they, they, are, uh, they don't mean anything to me. This is a reminder to me to, that you, God wants from you something. It's supposed to remind you something. Then he tells me, you know, I was looking all over the internet and I couldn't find a normal, simple explanation. Fine. They continue the conversation, the boys with him, another 10, 15 minutes. Then, he had another question. Why you have the, the, the payers, the long payers? Why some religious Jews build these long payers? I told them because it's written in the Bible, in the, in the biblical time, idol worshippers used to shave their heads completely. That was the style, especially the two sides. Then, then uh, they, they, they were, that's how they were, they were shaving their heads. Then the Torah, because the Torah wanted to separate the Jews from idol worshiping. Why, why it's so important? Because ultimately the idol worshipers used to burn their little children for the gods. Then the Torah wanted to make sure the Jews have no connection to such things. Then the Torah said, you have to grow a little bit of fear right here on both sides. And you don't need to leave long prayers, but you have a little bit. The long prayers came from traditions, because it was a decree in Europe not to shave the, 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 the two sides, therefore the temples, therefore the, the Jewish people wanted to make a point that they have, that they have payers, that they grow longer ones. Fine. I went to Germany. I go to Germany. I'm there. I, need, I needed a PCR test before I come back. I needed a PCR test, a corona test before I went there. I needed another corona test before I came back. That's another separate nightmare that I'm not going to go into details. And the craziness around this was much more painful than the test himself. Here in America, they give you a test, they build a tetio. In Germany, a test is a test. They go all the way to your brain and they check if you didn't lose anything. In any case, they, um, 
as I'm staying there in the main train station for, uh, for the test, a guy comes over to me, can I ask you a question in English? I said, yes. He says, why are you wear this face? This guy in Germany, I didn't take risks to give him long explanations. Bible worshiping, pagan, this. I told them just, that's written in the Bible, and that's why we do it. But then I was thinking to myself, what is going on? Wherever I go, the same questions, pay us? Since when the guy in Germany knows about pay us? Then I realized they all were watching Stissel. <laughs> it's all about Stissel. <laughs> and, and, and therefore, they're, they're, uh, they're all busy with the same thing. In any case, I went to Germany to visit my sister. You, if you remember, they, what happened is I went to a, the first yard site of my brother-in-law. My brother-in-law passed away a year ago from COVID. And, and uh, this year was the yard site. Now, first of all, I couldn't go to the funeral. I couldn't go to the shiva. I couldn't go to the shleishim because of now that I'm vaccinated, thank God, I'm going to vaccinate the Jews. Then we can go, we can go there. But more than that, they, in honor of the first yacht site, they inaugurated a new building, a new Chabad house that they bought for three and a half million euro, a big building. It's not a new building. It's new for Chabad. The real estate in Germany is very expensive. And, and they named it after him. It's called Beit Benjamin. His name is Benny, Benjamin. And they named it after him, the house, Benjamin house, basically. And uh, what happened is, and uh, to the, inauguration came to, to, the, to the event, came a guy, his name is Christian Wolf. He is the former president of Germany. He's Jewish? He's not Jewish, he has, his name is Wolf. My, my brother-in-law's name is Wolf, and this guy's name is Wolf. The Wolf family, the Jewish Wolf family is coming from Germany. It's a German name. And this guy's name is Wolf too, a very, very nice guy, a real mensch. And he lives in Hanover and when, Another Chabad rabbi called them and told them, we would like you to, we want to invite you to the event. He didn't say, right he said, I'm coming. And the, and the authorities were very, even that the old Germany is under a lockdown, we got special permits to come to Germany because you need a special permit and the authorities were very cooperative, like amazingly. What really happened is a year ago when my, my brother-in-law passed away on a Friday night, and he left his wife with eight children. The youngest is four years old. The oldest was at that time not married. Over the years, she got married. And then, uh, and my everybody, conventional wisdom was that she's going to go back to Israel, pick up your family, go back to Israel and try to rebuild their life. You know, she's from Israel. My brother-in-law is from Israel. The two families there, everybody who should have a support group. But Friday night, when she walked from the hospital to the house, it was close to the house. She walked, it was Shabbos. And she was thinking she's to tell the, the kids that her father passed away, died. And she, she said it was a dark night. It was even darker in her heart. Then she, she made a decision that is going to be buried in Hanover. That's the name of the city she lives. And she's going to stay there and to continue the mission that she and her husband started, the Chabad, Chabad house that they opened in, in, in Hanover. She said, E from above and I from below, together we'll build, continue to build it there. No, the family in Israel did not know about it until Saturday night, they didn't talk to them. And they already prepared their private plane to bring the coffin and so on. But then she shocked the whole world. 
with this decision. She said, my, me and my husband had a dream to build a big Chabad in Hanover, and I'm going to fulfill his dream. It was such a shocking decision for a woman with eight children. You need to understand Hanover is far from any big city. In their own city, there is 8,000 Jews. Most of the Jews in Germany are Russian Jews. I'm talking about 98%, maybe 99%. In Hanover, maybe there is five Jews who are not Russian. All the Jewish community is Russian Jews. And, and, uh, and there is no, in your city, there is no kosher food, there is no Jewish education, there is no nothing. But she decided she stays there. And, uh, and then she, her decision shocked the world that she later, they made fundraisers on the internet, you know, the, the fundraising that you do, it's called charity and other things. Then 16,000 people from all over the world, Chabad and not Chabad, religious and not religious, donated, donated secular Jews, non-Jews, donated to your cause to, build, to help you to buy the Chabad. And many people, your decision was so respected and so inspired so many people then many, many people dedicated days and night to fundraise for you for this event, for, to, to, to achieve your goal, to help you to fulfill your dream. And this, and last week, she, the, dream was fulfilled, the dream was fulfilled and they inaugurated the building. And Mr. Wolf, the former, minister, former president of Germany said to her, and his comments, he said, you, you are an inspiration, not only to all women in the world, she's such a feminist, but even to men, she is one of the very few Chabad women who are running a Chabad house. Usually it's a couple. But she is now, her husband died, that she's, she's the head of Chabad. Now, many people wondering where she found the strength to continue no matter what. And first of all, she's a little bit like my father. She's a reflection of my father. My father was a very, um, dedicated man, a man of faith, and reality never changed his mind. He did what he believed in, no matter what. And she took, you know, girls take after the father, boys take after the, after the mothers, and she took after my father a lot. Also, I, 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 the, not long ago, I read the story about the Rebbe's parents. The Rebbe grew up in a city, it's called Dineper, Dinepapotrovsk, it's called. It's a large city in Ukraine. When he grew up there in the early 90s, he was born in 1902. His father was the chief rabbi of the city. It was a big city with 80,000 Jews. And then World War, World War I broke out in, 2000, in 1912, I think, or 1914, something like this. Then one of the decrees of the Tsar was the Tsar came out and he said, we cannot trust the Jews. They are traitors, they are collaborators. We cannot trust them, they will not collaborate with the enemy. Then they have to leave all the cities that are the border with Poland in the other state or countries so in war with, with, with Russia. All the Jews have to leave and go inside Russia. Within 24 hours, that was the Tsar decree, Nikolai, Nicholas. Think about it. You have a home, you have a business, you have a life, you have to leave everything, right? First of all, you leave everything means next day somebody else comes and breaks into and you're doing whatever you want. Because the war is a war. Everybody knows at that time, especially wars are not for two weeks. And you have to leave. 
take your children, and how much can you share with you? It was a terrible tragedy, you see? Because of the Holocaust, every tragedy that was before it was forgotten because the Holocaust was so much worse than everything. Then anything else looks like nothing, paled. But really it was a terrible thing. Hundreds of thousands of Jews in one minute became refugees. Then they run into Ukraine and hundreds and hundreds of families showed up in Yekaterinoslav in the city. In, at that time, the Nepapotrovsk, at that time, the name was Yekaterinoslav. In any case, they showed up in the city where the Rebbe's parents lived. And the Rebbe and the Rebbe's parents is the rabbi and his wife organized committees, one committee to find place for people to sleep, one committee to provide food for the refugees, another committee to buy legal or, uh, medication. This, can you imagine hundreds and hundreds of families arrive to a city and they have nothing? No clothing, no food, no money, nothing. Everybody had a little money, his pocket, whatever he can step, that's it. And that was after a journey of weeks that they lost everything, were robbed by people. Who knows what happened? And that one family, a boy who was then a boy, who later wrote a story that he wrote what he remembers on the experience. He said, anybody, you know, in such an environment, they want to point on the Jew. Here is a collaborator, right away, he's arrested. And during war, there is no questions. Collaborating or spying for the enemy was sh being shot to death, no questions. In, in addition, they came up with a new idea. Every city, from every city, they took two collateral, two Jews, arrested them as collateral. If somebody from your city is caught spying, these two will be shot to death to scare the rest of the community. This guy tells the story, his name is Alan Friedenthal. He says his father was one of the collaterals who were taken and arrested. And his mother with the kids goes to knock on the rabbi's door to beg him for help. He said they arrived to the rabbi's house, he had a big house. The house was like a beehive, like a train station. People are coming and going. This guy, this group is doing this and they pay bringing out food, taking out clothing, going on and on and on. He finally, they're able to make it to the rabbi. The rabbi heard the story with tears in his eyes. He couldn't believe it. He says, I'll do everything that I can. First of all, he had connections in the city. He was a very respected man, the rabbi's father, and was respected in the city. He got permission to go to visit the prisoners. Came out, there are 40 Jews who are arrested for this kind of things. Blamed, nothing, did nothing. Collateral, things like this. And then, he was able to go in and out to visit them. He used to sneak in letters from the family and letters from them to the family. You know, they should have a connection, communication. For this alone, if he would be caught doing it, he would be shot. You need to understand, even today in time of war, every country is doing strange things. As you know, World War II with the, with the Japanese, and there is, especially in Russia, in World War I, Jewish life was not worth anything to begin with. Then what happened is he started to, then he, he didn't stop him by having connections then. 
he got after more connections and more pressure, they allowed them to bring them kosher food into the prison. Then weeks passed, he was able to talk to the officers and to the leaders of the community. And he was able to get him to allow to put the Jews, he took his responsibility to not run away in house quarantine, in house arrest. They took one place and they put all the foreign Jews together and put guards. They should be there and they cannot leave, but at least people can come and help them. And they're in their own place in a different environment. Finally, before the holidays, they were able to release them and to go, go, let them go free. Then they came for the first night of Slichot. They came to the shul and they said Slichot with the rabbi. And there is in the first Slichot, there is a line that says, um, from you will get life. It means about God. But the language is from you will getting life. Then uh, actually the line is, for good life with you will receive something like this that they pointed on the rabbi and they said from you will get life and they cried and they said it again and again and later somebody asked the rabbi where you found the strength where you got the strength you basically risked his life to get the Jews out of jail many times that he said that Lubavitch that Chabad is drawing their inspiration from the stories of Rabbi Akiva Rabbi Akiva lived in a time when the Roman emperor said a decree that you're not allowed to teach Torah. And anybody will teach Torah in Israel will be executed. And Rabbi Akiva taught Torah and they warned them they will be executed and eventually was executed. Then, then, uh, then he says, we take from this that the idea is that we for the sake of another Jew, we, we, we are ready to give our life. So to go all the way. And I think my sister, you all also self-dedication comes from the same place because it's not about me. It's not about the individual. If there is a mission that we need to help other Jews, that takes priority and you do everything that you can do to make it, to make it happen. And you don't let life control you. And this had a connection to the parsha of this week, which we learned, we read in the synagogue last week about the circumcision. We read about with the beginning of the parsha of Tazria is about when a woman gives birth and the eighth day, you should circumcise her son. What is circumcision? You don't ask the child if he wants to be circumcised, he's eight days old. It's not a logical decision. It's not by the consent of the two sides. You know, breeze means Covenant, that's what the word bris mean, a covenant. A covenant you do between two people that no matter what, that's, you know, a marriage is called a covenant. Why is a marriage called a covenant? Because no matter what, we, we are stuck, you know, when you are in love, you don't need to make a covenant. Why is a couple under the hoop and needs to make a covenant? They're in love. That one day the love might fly out through the window, at least for a short time, for five minutes. Then the commitment will make it survive. No matter what, we'll make it work. Then this commitment between the Jew and God, God makes the covenant with the Jew. The baby is eight days old. God makes it a covenant that no matter what, the relationship will survive. That the relationship with the Jewish people, that Jew will be a Jew no matter what. 
And that's why we also do it by the eighth day. You see seven represents, seven days represents the days of the week. The full cycle of creation, God created the world in seven days, right? Six days he created, the seven day, the seven day rested, the full cycle was seven days. Creation represents nature, the cycle of nature. Eight represents above nature. Eight is like in top of nature. I'm not afraid of nature. I'm not letting nature shape my life. I will shape nature. Conventional wisdom says, your husband died, you pick up your family and you start trying to start a new life. Jewish wisdom says, I'm not allowing the reality shape my life. I will shape reality. I'm not afraid of the circumstances. I will overcome them and make them the way I want, the way they should be. And this strength, that's what every one of us really has. We're not talking about giving your life. We're not asking anybody to be Rabbi Akiva or to be like the Rebbe's father, to go to risk your life or not even what my sister did. What you are talking about, you know, in daily life, you know, sometimes I wanted to come to the class. I didn't work out. Somebody made a phone call. I wanted to go to school. I, didn't I wanted to help my friends and it didn't work out. Something came up. It's a, no, no, something came up. If you think it's the right thing to do, there's no something came up. You make the something. I remember that once Jonathan Sachs, the first time Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, the chief rabbi of England who passed away not long ago, said that he came the first time to the Rebbe. The Rebbe was asking him, tell me what is going, it was, I think he was in Cambridge. And then in college, he was a scholar. So the Rebbe told him, is there, what's going on with the Jewish community, kids in college, are you? that he started to tell the Rebbe, in the situation that I find myself, that the Rebbe cut him off, Rebbe never cut off people. And he told him, you don't find yourself in a situation. You make the situation. You control the situation. That's what it's all about. You have to learn to control the situation and not, and, and, uh, not, not allow 